hello, everybody, and welcome to the Dwell on Truth show. This is Dan Bodwin. And I'm Brenton Powers. And we are continuing our our journey through the book of John and specifically through, the, through uh, chapter 19, which we started on the last show, talking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And we are going to be continuing the chapter and finishing the chapter on this show. So the last one, we read through Psalm um, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, which are passages of scripture um, with prophecies regarding Jesus. And I would encourage you guys to go back and read those again, if you are able, so that you can kind of have the that information fresh in your mind, because it will connect with much of the stuff that we're going through today. We also read through the entire chapter last time of uh, John 19, encourage you if you're able to read through that as well. And we're just going to start going section by section and verse by verse, starting with verse 17. Um, and then um, we're going to talk a little bit, um, start off with talking a little bit about what crucifixion really looked like. And just like we talked about flogging on the last show um, and and just how brutal that was, crucifixion is, is as bad or worse. So, Brent, you want to start with uh, reading the first few verses for that one? Okay. So, John chapter 19, verse 16 and following. So, he delivered him over to be crucified. So, they took Jesus, and he went out, and bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Actually, there's a Latin name for it as well. That's Calvary. Mm-hmm. It may sound familiar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that does sound very familiar. There's a lot of churches named after this location, which means the frontal lobe of the skull. If you go to Israel, and I've been there to this spot, uh, the hill where he was crucified, it's kind of a mm. public thoroughfare. There was people walking by in this hillside. It's kind of a rocky hillside, and some of the clefts in the rock kind of look like eye gouges and a nose gouge for it, like a, mm. if you use your imagination. You can see a skull in the side of the cliff. Yeah, interesting. And of course, they wanted this to be a public spectacle. It was a way that the Romans, I guess, kept the people in line as if, you know, you better watch your watch yourself or this is what could happen to you. So they wanted it on a public thoroughfare where everybody would see what was happening. It's now a bus depot today. You can see a bunch of buses below this hill, Golgotha. Wow. Yeah. So still a public thoroughfare. <laughs> yep. And so picture the scene up on top of this hill. Probably, I would mm-hmm. guess, from the level that people walk on and the buses are, it's about 30 feet up to this kind of plateau where the cross, the people would be crucified. <clears throat> so there they crucified him with two others on either side, verse 18, I'm reading, and Jesus mm-hmm. between them. So we picture Jesus in the center on the cross in the middle and two others being crucified. Mm-hmm. What do we know about these other two people? We know that they were criminals. Yeah, the thief on the cross, one of them repented. There was a thief and a robber. In the beginning, they were both mocking Jesus. But mm-hmm. over time, one became repentant and said, why are we mm-hmm. Why are we doing this? He's innocent. We deserve to be here. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, there's a great clip that people can look up by Alistair Begg. We won't go in depth here because John doesn't go in depth. But the thief on the cross dies and, and goes to heaven. Jesus had told mm-hmm. him, today you will be with me in paradise. And people would be like, how did he get in? In here? What did he know? And what did he do? Nothing. It's because the man on the middle cross said I could get in. That's the basis for his salvation. And it's the basis for ours as well. Indeed. Indeed. And we see a couple of prophecies being fulfilled in here, specifically from Isaiah 53. 53 9 says, and they made his grave with the wicked. So he was clearly dying with the wicked, as you just mentioned. And then in verse 12, it talks about Jesus being numbered with the transgressors. So again, we see prophecy fulfilled um, a couple of times. And if it's if you're good with it, Brenton, I would like to read a little bit of a description about crucifixion, because once again, it's it's something that we're kind of separated from. We hear the word, but we don't really, I think, as a as a culture, know what's involved in that. Sure. Sounds good. So this is going to be once again from the book, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. I encourage you guys, whether you're an, an, an unbeliever or a new believer or just someone who's interested in the details, go out and grab that. 
Um, so this is once again, a doctor, a medical doctor describing, um, the process of crucifixion. He said he would have been laid down and his hands would have been nailed in the outstretched position to the horizontal beam. This crossbar, which is what Jesus would have been carrying when they say he carried his cross was called the patibulum. And at this stage, it was separate from the vertical beam, which was permanently set in the ground. So uh, the commentator is saying, I was having difficulty visualizing this. I needed more details. Nailed with what? I asked. Nailed where? The doctor says, the Romans used spikes that were five to seven inches long and tapered to a sharp point, and they were driven through the wrists. So he indicates in a place about an inch or so below his palm. Hold on, I interrupted. I thought the nails pierced his palms. That's what all the paintings show. In fact, it's become a standard symbol representing the crucifixion. Through the wrists, um, Methrell repeated, this was a solid position to which, a uh, solid position that that would lock the hands. If the nails were um, had been driven through the palms, his weight would have caused the skin to tear and he would have fallen off the cross. So the nails were through the wrists, although this was considered part of the hand in the language of the day. It's the same in uh, Russian and Latvian too. Oh, is it really? The word for hand, it means basically from the fingers down to uh, almost the elbow. Wow. Okay. Well, that's good. That's a good connection to modern modern culture, too. So the nails went through the wrists, although this was considered part of the hand in the language of the day. And it's important to understand that the nail would go through the place where the median nerve runs. This is the largest nerve going out of the hand, and it would have been crushed by the nail that was being pounded in. So what sort of pain would that have produced? Let me put it this way, he replied. Do you know the kind of pain you feel when you bang your elbow and hit your funny bone? That's actually another nerve called the ulna nerve. It's extremely painful when you accidentally hit it. Well, picture taking a pair of pliers and squeezing and crushing that nerve, he said, emphasizing the word squeezing. Um, as he twisted an imaginary pair of pliers. The effect would have been similar to what Jesus experienced. The pain was absolutely unbearable, he continued. In fact, it was literally beyond words to describe. They had to invent a new word, which you meant, mentioned earlier, Brenton, excruciating, which literally means out of the cross. They needed to create a new word because there was nothing in the language that could describe the intense anguish caused during the crucifixion. At this point, Jesus was hoisted as the crossbar was attached to the vertical stake and the nails were driven through Jesus' feet. Again, the nerves in the feet would have been crushed and there would have been a similar type of pain. Yeah. So, um, And he's asked what stress this would put on the body. The doctor replied, first of all, the arms would have been immediately stretched, probably about six inches in length, and both shoulders would have become dislocated. Um, this, of course, fulfills Psalm 22, which foretold the crucifixion hundreds of years before when it says my bones were out of joint. That's what it was talking about. And so once a person is hanging in the vertical position, he, re um, he replied, crucifixion is essentially an agonizingly slow death by asphyxiation. The reason is that the stresses on the muscles and diaphragm put the chest in the inhaled position. Basically, in order to exhale, the individual must push up with his feet so the tension on the muscles would be eased for a moment. In doing so, the nail would tear through the foot, eventually locking up against the tarsal bones. After managing to exhale, the person would then be able to relax down and take another breath in. Again, he didn't have to push himself up to exhale. Scraping, again, he'd have to put him, let me start again. Again, he'd have to push himself up to exhale, scraping his bloodied back against the coarse wood of the cross. This would go on and on until complete exhaustion would take over and the person wouldn't be able to push up and breathe anymore. And there's oh, there's there's more details, but I think that illustrates the point. This was, I mean, Jesus nails through the through the nerves on his hands and his feet, causing the maximum amount of pain. Having his bloodied, beaten back up against a rough wooden cross and being hung where he had to push himself and scrape against that cross every time he wanted to take a breath, knowing that he, if he stopped, he would asphyxiate and die immediately. So the physical pain, the emotional anguish and pain, the fear... I, I I can't even imagine. I wouldn't do this. I, I wouldn't do this to my worst enemy. Mm. That was all the the written part. So where do you want to go from here? Yeah. So once again, he was crucified, as it says in eighteen. That describes crucifixion. And then Pilate 
um, wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. And uh, I, I think there's archaeological evidence that indicates he probably wrote this ahead of time and hung it around his neck. They would hang the charges of the person that was being brought to the cross around their neck so they could be seen. And it said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So that was the stated charge posted on the cross. And it's like some of the some of the things that we we saw earlier, you know, when they said, you know, king of the Jews, here is your king. They're accusing him of something that is actually true about him. It's interesting. But it interests me, too, that the Jews wanted him killed for blasphemy. So that should have been what was posted there. But that's not what Pilate chose to write. He actually wrote a title up there. And it said, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek, which were the three primary languages of the time. Mm. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. What's the first reference for that? Where are you at? Sorry, that is going to be John, ending with John chapter 19, verse 22. Thank you. Just as I am awestruck to think of and picture Jesus on the cross, this all playing out, um, Mm -hmm. I am thinking of some New Testament cross references, like when Mm -hmm. Paul said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling Mm -hmm. block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Chapter 2, verse Mm -hmm. 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Mm -hmm. And uh, chapter, uh, same book, 1 Corinthians 2, 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The fact of the crucifixion being so central in the Christian faith um, is it's, it's such a deep thing to behold, um, but it's so central that Jesus would be crucified. That's why people wear crosses. That's why in churches they put mm-hmm. crosses on top, because that's if you boil the gospel down to what really is the the most important part of Jesus's mm-hmm. ministry. You see all four gospels spend a long time describing uh, leading up to the crucifixion and describing this crucifixion because it was just so shocking that the king would a king would be crucified and that's the way to victory. <laughs> I mean, normal human kings when they they're dead then they, oh, that's his defeat. Mm. But in what Satan thought would be a defeat of God in the flesh is the very path through through which he would redeem humanity, at least those who believe in him. And so this crucifixion, it's meaningful. I like to ask people on the streets, like when they're wearing a cross, I'll say, hey, what does that necklace mean to you? Um, so I want to ask that of our audience today, or the listeners, our community, Dwell on Truth uh, listeners. What does the crucifixion mean to you? Um, it meant one thing to the Romans and to the Jews of that time that is often left out, and it's a torture device. It's the most yes. painful way invented by humans in which to execute somebody. Mm-hmm. It means another thing uh, in the overall context of the Bible that he would be crushed for our iniquities, bruised for our transgressions, pierced for our transgressions, breaking of God's law. He was taking the punishment that we deserved. There's so much. We talk all all the time about the crucifixion of Jesus, but here it is in a historical account uh, written by the apostle John as he saw it. And I'm just in awe today. Just that's why I was listening to you and just kind of thinking, where do you go from here? But you could just kind of gawk at the the site. You also commented, Dan, on how Pilate put the sign up there that said mm-hmm. King of the Jews. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of Jews don't even know that that is t- today. A lot of Jews don't know that that is what was written above. But for those testimonies I've heard of Jews who have accepted Christ as their Messiah, uh, they sometimes that state is the first thing that catches their interest and gives them pause. Like, mm-hmm. wait, what? Jesus was called the King of the Jews? Because a lot yeah. of times the story they're familiar with is he was some political rebel that, like Ben Shapiro says, he was a political <laughs> rebel that got uh, crucified for his troubles, for causing trouble. But that's, it couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, it really couldn't. 
And I like that Pilot stuck to his guns. He, he said, it's what I've written, I've written. And yeah. if they were going to manipulate him to have Jesus crucified, then he would get the last word on what, what they were actually yeah. calling for, the crucifixion of yeah, he was, their own king. Yeah, he was pushing back a little get, bit against the, the political pressure. And uh, yeah, kind of brings some, some clarity to exactly what the Jews were actually doing. Yeah. When you say Jews, generally, we got to clarify, we're talking about the religious leaders, we're talking about Correct. also the Romans. Romans that crucified him. We're talking about ourselves mm-hmm. also. Uh, we yeah, would have yeah. called for the same thing had we been uh, in the same position as these people, unregenerate, not born again people. Yeah, yeah. Indeed, we would have. So now, why don't we move on to verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. This and also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Um, So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scriptures. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And that prophecy is from Psalm 22, verse 18, which we read before. So throughout this, we see things specifically happening to fulfill prophecies. The idea of his hands and feet being pierced was in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, that he had to be killed in a particular way. And it says, so the soldiers did these things. Psalm 22, verse 18, if you want to look it up. Yes, yes. And why is it important that, why do we keep pointing to prophecy? What's what's the big deal about prophecy? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I mean, I think we talked about this on the last show, but I'll reiterate it because it is, you know, very important that we've, there are all kinds of different religious systems out there and groups and, and claimed people who speak for God. And how do we know the difference between one and the other? How do we know that the Bible is true and other things are not? Well, one of the primary primary ways that we know is through fulfilled prophecy, because only God can look down the corridors of time and know what's going to happen in the future, because he's outside of time, he sees everything at once, and accurately say, I won't even say predict, because predict indicates that maybe he might get it wrong. No, God never gets it wrong. He sees what's going to happen in the future. He lets us know ahead of time so that when we get to that future event, we can say, ah, this is from God. God did know. We can see that now. And there's a lot of that in these in this chapter. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, mm-hmm. So the so what question, we sometimes need to ask the question, so what? Mm-hmm. Well, if this is a fulfilled prophecy, then we should believe it. God mm. says, I tell you in advance so that when it takes place, you would believe that I am he. So it's just one Amen. more of those pieces of evidence. They just keep piling up. There's more than 300 fulfilled prophecies in the life of Jesus. So this is yes. yet another one. And the detail that goes into about them not not ripping his uh, clothes, but casting lots for it. The, yes. You know, it's it's a testament to that this was written by an eyewitness. Mm-hmm. And also, there's other implications like, well, how much of his garments did they take off of him before crucify before crucifying him? I mean, was he crucified naked on a cross? A lot of historians say that that was very common for criminals yeah. to be so humiliated to the extreme of being completely naked on the cross. I mean, most yeah. crucifixion as you see painted or whatever will have a loincloth covering the private area but uh and i'm not i've never been fully convinced that jesus was completely naked because i don't i haven't read in the scripture that it says he was naked but this is the closest to it i think where it says they Mm -hmm. they had his garments so what was he wearing probably not much i don't know if he was completely naked or just or close like underwear on. Yeah. You know, how embarrassing would that be? Many of us have had uh, bad dreams that we showed up somewhere naked. (laughs) There is shame. And maybe this ties in back with the fall, right? What happened when Adam and Eve sinned against God? They were promised that they would know things like God, but they realized they were naked and they felt shame for the first time. Yeah. But Jesus came to redeem us from the the fall and he took our mm-hmm. shame, not only our guilt, but the shame as well. We need to recognize that. There's some cultures where that even means a lot more than the judicial taking of our guilt. They'll, you know, it breaks them to think about Jesus taking also their shame because they're in an mm-hmm. honor shame culture, particularly yeah, like yeah. in Asia. So, yeah. 
So going down to verse 26 and continuing. Yeah, let's continue. It says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, um, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And when it talks about the disciple whom Jesus loves, we know from other um, pieces of context that this is John himself who's speaking. We see throughout the gospel that he refers to himself in the third person. You know, I think it's it says something about his humility, that he's not trying to make much of himself. But it is very clear that he was there and this was something that he watched happen. And that he committed to. He took Mary, Jesus's mother, to mm-hmm. and treated her as his own mother. He, yeah. You know, this is, I mean, you think about when someone is dying, what are their mm-hmm. wishes? What would you, who's going to yeah. take? care of their their family you know it's this yeah, is jesus's yeah. will that john would be the one to kind of be a uh, stand-in son to mary and for mm-hmm. mary to look after john who was probably one of the youngest disciples yeah so he would be able to take care of her for the longest time the other thing one of the commentaries i read on this mentioned that you know jesus of course part of what made him the perfect sacrifice was that he perfectly kept the law of God. And it makes me think back to, you know, it's a, it talks about when he was in the temple at, I believe it was 12, um, and his parents didn't know where he was, and they went looking for him. And um, after they picked him up, it says that he went with them and submitted to their authority. He believed in honoring his father and his mother as, as the commandment said, and he followed that perfectly, even to his last moment. Because Mary was, by all accounts, younger than Joseph. She had probably been widowed at this point. So without Jesus, she would have needed to be cared for. And he made sure that he followed the law perfectly, even to his last Mm. breath. Honor your father and mother. Yes, indeed. Why do we think Joseph had already died at this point? Well, we don't know for sure. Scripture doesn't say for sure. Um, but the fact that he's never mentioned in any of the life or ministry of mm-hmm. Jesus would be a good indication of that. Um, of course, it was not unusual um, for a, a, a man to marry a much younger woman, and we think that was probably the case with Mary. Uh, Mary would have probably been in her late 40s or early 50s at this point if she had Jesus as a teenager. Yeah. Um, and so, and why, if he was still alive, why would Jesus be handing her care over to another mm-hmm. man? So it, it makes sense under the context. Yeah. Now, speaking of Mary, we have some mm-hmm. Catholics listening to us probably, and mm-hmm. I've heard some Catholic theologians say this is why they call her Mother Mary, because they would interpret Jesus is not only talking to the disciple John, but also to the church, behold your mother, in a sense, mm. saying that the church should see, should um, treat her as their own, as our own mother. But mm. I I think that is stretching beyond what Jesus is meaning to say here. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. It goes beyond what the text mm-hmm. says. It's kind of reading your theology back into the yes. text rather than pulling your theology, yep. your theology from the text. Yep. We honor her uh, as the mother mm-hmm. of Jesus. She was chosen by God to bear him and raise him, and um, he honored her in in this way, but we shouldn't deify her or revere her as divine or as a co-redemptrix. She was there standing by the cross, and you can imagine the pain of a mother seeing her adult child uh, executed in such a way, but um, that's not, and it was, you know, piercing to her heart, but none of that is effectual toward us. It's just the compassion of a mother and the compassion of a son toward his mother. So it's not that we say she's not important. She has a role. She had a role, but we don't pray to Mary. We don't have, um, we don't have images of her that we bow down to or kiss or anything like that. She's not, mm. um, she's with the Lord. We, you're not supposed to pray to the dead, but you are supposed to have one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. Amen. That's such an important, and that was that was a verse that really was very um, instrumental in causing me to leave the Roman Catholic Church, just seeing the contrast between that and um, what we actually, be, between what we see in Scripture and what is Roman Catholic doctrine. Yep. First Corinthians 2, 5. I said that, that reference, right? 
Yes. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Amen. Okay. What verse are we going on to next in John chapter 18? We're on verse 28, if you'd like to read that. Okay. After this, and this is uh, in our Bibles, the title is given, The Death of Jesus, verse 28 through 30. Mm, yeah. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Uh, this was, was this in Psalm 22? Which scripture was this fulfilling? This is Psalm 69, 21 that talks about this. Then it's uh, an, the offer of gall and vinegar. Let me see if I can pull that up. But the thirst, I think that was Psalm 22. I'll, I'll check. Yeah. Okay, we'll take a minute and find it. Yep. Oh, okay, yes, it is Psalm 69, 21. They, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Yep. Yeah, vinegar is, is sour. Yeah, it's a soured wine is basically uh -huh. what it is, yeah. Um, so when Jesus, this is verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And I think this is, uh, it is finished. The word um, is tetelestai, uh, which means the work is done or the task is accomplished. I think this is possibly the most powerful statement in scripture, front to back. Jesus came to accomplish something, to accomplish his ministry, to accomplish the payment for sins. And he's saying the work is done. And uh, that is what separates Christianity from every other faith in the world. Every other faith is a do faith. You have to do things to make God, the God, the deity, pleased with you. And in biblical Christianity, the work is finished. Jesus finished it on the cross. And all we have to do is trust in who he is and what he did apart from our own goodness. Mm -hmm. Dan, you often talk on the streets about the payment for sins. And mm -hmm. to apply this in uh, financial terms, it's like saying something has been paid in full. Mm -hmm. Paid the complete price for That's our right. sins. There wasn't any more suffering that needed to happen for our sins than what he went through. And including the death of Christ. He died for our sins. As it said in John chapter 13, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He paid the yes. ultimate price and and declared, paid in full. It's finished. To Yeah. What language is that? Do you know? Is that Aramaic or Greek or what? I believe that is Aramaic. Okay. Yeah. The other really powerful passage for that is um, in Colossians chapter 2. Mm. Excuse me. And I'll start in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumph triumphing over them in him. That's another passage I'd, I love to read on the street because that encapsulates it. There was a legal demand. We broke God's law. He satisfied God's law and paid for all the wrong uh, that we had done for our trespasses. Mm -hmm. That'll preach, that one Aramaic word. <laughs> <laughs> it will. It will indeed preach. <laughs> so what should be so what? What should we do about that? If it's if it's finished, does that mean mm -hmm. we don't have to keep we don't have to work for our salvation? That's exactly what it means. Um, best framed by uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, mm -hmm. or is it 8 through 10, I think it is. By grace, we have been saved through faith. This is not of ourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So it's not by any work that we do. Now, what part does works have? The next verse says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which that he prepared in advance that we should walk in them. So we should want, we should desire to follow Jesus and to keep his law. That's how we show we love him. But it's his work that paid the price, not our work that does it. Yeah. And it confirms what actually verse 28 said as well. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, mm -hmm. that the scripture might be fulfilled. So 
all things that were predicted. He predicted it, he pulled it off, and he talked about it even later after he rose from the grave and he rebuked the disciples and said, is it not written that the Son of Man should suffer and die before entering into his glory? Like he had to go through the cross. He couldn't just go from living a perfect life to uh, reigning as king forever. Like there's a sin problem that had to be dealt with and he dealt with it perfectly in a way that you'll never be able to pay for your sins perfectly. That's why one of the reasons why hell is eternal. And mm-hmm. Jesus, how this is a good question. People may wonder. Mm-hmm. Well, it, why was Jesus only? Gosh, one of our listeners on the radio called in and said Jesus only took the weekend off. Well, why was his time on the cross so short? If mm-hmm. he was taking the punishment for the sins of all humanity for all time. Well, the intensity of the suffering is one reason. The mm-hmm. uh, value of the offering. This isn't just a man. This is yeah. the eternal God. Um, That's right. And the punishment fits the crime. The crimes, our sins were against God primarily, and so it took God uh, to pay for it. Once he gave his life once and for all, that was that was enough. Yeah, the sacrifice of, was of infinite value, so it could pay the price for infinite sin. Mm-hmm. There's no nothing, no person, no thing in, in the universe that's as valuable as God. Yes, well said. One single word could change everything. It can, and it did. From guilty to not guilty, he can declare us Mm. as if we have been crucified and our punishment has been paid. Therefore, we can go free. Yeah. From guilty to to telestai. I like that. One word, all the difference. So verse, the next verse would be verse 31 and uh, 32. And I have a little bit of reading that I want to do briefly for this after we do it, because I think it's relevant. Um, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high holy day, of course it was Passover, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and then of the other who had been crucified with him. And we read earlier how when somebody's crucified, they had to push themselves. They were in an exhaled position hanging on the cross, and they had to push themselves up against the cross with their feet in order to draw breath. So if you break their legs, they can't they push can't up breathe. to, yeah, they can't breathe. So they die of suffocation. Mm. They basically, yeah. Um, so, but when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead and did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out both blood and water. And I think this is really good evidence that he was truly dead. Can I read another quick passage? Yeah, just on, can I mention something that that, that was Please prophesied do. too as well? That Oh, yeah, not yeah. A, not one of his bones would be broken. Yes, thank you for pointing that out. You're absolutely right. Because by normal circumstances, their bones would have been broken, but his were not. Especially since this is kind of one of those special Passovers where there was more celebration mm-hmm. to be done on the next day. They didn't want to have yeah. them uh, still on the cross yeah. in the Sabbath. Kind of a downer for people visiting the city when they have to drive, you know, walk by these um, you know, beaten bodies outside the gate. Yeah. In verse 31, it says, since it was the day of preparation, and so mm-hmm. that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath mm-hmm. was a high day, the Jews asked mm-hmm. Pilate that their legs might be broken. So there's also some clues here. You didn't bring it up earlier, but I'll bring it up now about like what day was Jesus crucified? Mm -hmm. You know, there's the church calendar that says it's Good Friday. But if Jesus said, just as Jonah was in the heart of the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. If you count Friday, Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, and then he rises Sunday morning, that's only two days and two nights, uh, Mm -hmm. or maybe three is if you count part of a day. Jewish people did count part of a day as a full day. So that would be three mm-hmm. days and two nights. But there's another theory that he was actually crucified on a Thursday because not only was Sabbath uh, Saturday, but this would be a double Sabbath. So that would Correct. add uh, another Sabbath on like a Friday. So he would be crucified mm-hmm. Thursday, buried Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. That's th- there, there you get three nights and three days. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that, that. It really, you're right. That's very important for the for the the context because generally, when we say Sabbath, we think about the Jewish holy day, which is Saturday. But a Sabbath could refer to other special holy days yeah. too. A high Sabbath, or you can call it a double mm-hmm. Sabbath. Yeah, when you yeah get a, exactly. Not just a two day weekend, but a three day weekend. <laughs> 
Yes, indeed. But Jesus didn't take the weekend off. That's a blasphemous uh, thing that was I, I, that bothered me when that guy said it, and when I had to quote it him a few minutes ago. This was yeah. a high price Jesus paid for us. Sorry. So that's all. You were going to go on to read something. No, that's okay. Very good points. Thanks for sharing that. I just wanted to talk a little bit about the soldiers piercing his side, and at once came out blood and water, because some people will look at that and think about it as just some kind of poetic thing. Mm. But it actually, there's a medical significance to it. So from the same book that we read earlier, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, um, this medical doctor is talking about even before he, that is Jesus, died, um, the hypervo- um Hypovolemic, I believe is how you pronounce it, shock would have caused a sustained rapid heart rate that would have contributed to heart failure. Some people think it's really heart failure that killed Jesus. He died of a broken heart. And, uh, you know, that's a uh, poetic, but also likely true. Um, that heart um, that would have contributed to heart failure, resulting in a collection of fluid in the membrane around the heart called a pericardial effusion, as well as around the lungs, which is called uh, um, pleural effusion. Hopefully I'm pronouncing these things right. I am not a doctor. <laughs> um, what, what happened when the Roman soldier came around and being fairly certain that Jesus was dead, confirmed it by thrusting a spear into his right side. It was probably his right side. That's not certain, but from the description, it was probably the right side between the ribs. The spear apparently went through the right lung and into the heart. Where the So when the spear was pulled out, some fluid, the pericardial effusion, came out. Um, this would have had the appearance of a clear fluid, like water, followed by a large volume of blood. So as the eyewitness John describes in his gospel. So blood and water, not just poetic, but it talks about the likely, um, what would have made sense, um, you know, medically. So, and, and I just bring that up because once again, we, we've got to remember that the things that happen in the gospel um, are historical narrative. They're talking about something that really happened in history to a real person. And then when you check the text against the medical facts that we know and against historical background, they actually fit. So, and of course, this fulfills Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. I think you might have already mentioned that, Brenton, where it says they will look on him whom they have pierced. Yes. Are we in verse 37? 37 is where it, re- it quotes, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Yeah. And again, another scripture says, yeah, this, so we, we keep seeing over and over, scriptures are being fulfilled. Scripture says. That's right. Yeah, so Jesus yeah. fulfills the scripture so that you may believe. That's the it. Evidence is there. Um, but also, the, I think there may be some historical um, significance to why would he quote that at this point? I mean, through this whole chapter, we've been looking at him. Behold the man under trial. Behold the your mm-hmm. king now condemned to be crucified. Um, you know, this is Jesus, king of the Jews on the cross. It was a public spectacle. It was, mm-hmm. and then after, even after he was dead, they will look on him. Meaning, it's, this is a public thing. This didn't happen in a corner. Yes, this was. Um, you know, Jesus was publicly crucified, and therefore we publicly proclaim him as mm. having been crucified. Amen. Like Paul said, we preach Christ crucified. And to the Galatians, he said, I um, just want to quote from Galatians 3, speaking of it being finished and uh, we don't have to work for our salvation in mm-hmm. Galatians 3, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Mm. Um, did you receive this the Spirit by the works of the law or the hearing of faith. And so we mm. ought to apply this truth that Jesus was crucified for our justification by believing in him. Don't look to your works. Don't look to yourself to save yourself. Look to Jesus there on the cross, having died for your sins, um, mm. for your salvation. You shall look on him who they pierced. And when he, when that was um, originally written in the Old Testament, this, the scripture that he's citing from is actually prophetic, not only of this moment, when he was pierced, 
But when Jesus will come back and mm. they will weep, uh, the Jews will recognize Jesus as their king yeah. one day, and they will they will look on him who they pierced, and they will weep for him. They will weep mm. that they had rejected him, and they will receive him once again as as they will recognize this is the one that we had pierced. So there is hope even in this bleak moment. Yes, there is. But it's okay to, to use some poetic license to say the heart was ruptured, therefore Jesus died of a broken heart. He died. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Tell me what you think, but some, sometimes I'll tell people, like, if you want to know how much Jesus loves you, like, he said it on the cross, stretched out his arms, I said, I love you this much. It's a poetic way of saying it. It is a poetic way. And, and even though I wouldn't choose to express it that way, it's accurate. Um, you know, I, I think that it's it's fair to say figuratively and yes. literally that Jesus died of a broken heart. Yes. We can be poetic. We don't always have to be wooden literalists on the way we express these no. truths. But we want them to impact not just our heads, but our hearts. Yeah. And we do see that, you know, Jesus, you know, um, Jesus wept. You know, he wept at the death of his friend. He mourned over it while he was looking at the city of Jerusalem and desiring for them to to turn from their sins and and the fact that the leaders would not turn from their sins so that the people might come to him and believe and you know there was real there was real pain and there was real suffering and there was real sorrow here um you know god really feels those things romans 5 8 but god shows his love for us in that mm-hmm. while we were still sinners christ died for us indeed indeed so let's finish the last few verses here as we've got a little less than 10 minutes okay. to wrap up here. Um, so verse 38, um, why don't we go verse by verse and we'll switch off here. Okay. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away the body. Verse 39, Nicodemus also, mm-hmm. who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Mm-hmm. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Yeah, there's a few points to bring out of this. First, we see Mm -hmm. these two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. Um, Mm -hmm. It says, of at least one of them, and I think we could infer the other one is the same, a secret disciple. He was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. And Nicodemus, you see him going to Jesus at night in John chapter 3 and saying, we know you're from God, um, and being you know convicted about his need to be born again. And mm. we see him later defending Jesus in a, in a kind of secretive way, not saying that he's a disciple, but by challenging the Pharisees by saying, does our law condemn him before he's even been tried? And uh, they started to ridicule him. Are you no, are you one of his disciples? I think he was, in my opinion. He was a, a secret disciple of Jesus. But at this point, his secret is, is out. He is really exposing, these two men are exposing themselves to identification with Jesus as someone that cared about him. So much so that they went through, uh, this is a lot of work that they went through to take the body of Jesus down from the cross, bind it in linen cloths and spices, and follow the Jewish custom of burial. Um, That was uh, expensive, and they invested into this, and they Mm -hmm. put their lives on the line. Um, So I think in this moment, there is a public expression of their faith. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I find it interesting, too, and this is just kind of a side note, but I think an important one, because right now as we record this, it's coming up on Christmas time, and I um, I think I've been thinking about, uh, you know, the story of Jesus' birth, and it says Nicodemus who came, and it was a mixture of, of myrrh and aloes of 75 pounds worth. It's interesting that myrrh is actually one of the gifts that was given to Jesus' parents by the 
by the wise men shortly after his birth. And in those three gifts, we see a kind of a future projection of who he was and who he would be. Gold, the sign of his kingship, frankincense, which was a holy incense that we see through the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Leviticus and Exodus as being you know, a primary ingredient in the, in the incense that was used in the temple. And it was added to so many of these sacrifices. And then we see myrrh, which was used as part of the burial ceremony. So all of these things, just another prophecy that talks fr from the beginning, showing that God knew what was going to happen and had the same plan from the beginning. I just find that very interesting. Mm -hmm. And the care that they took to to do this, mm -hmm. like, you know, they were inspecting the dead body of Jesus, pulling the splinters and thorns out and any debris, mm -hmm. washing the body and then, put, and then applying these, these things. The myrrh probably, I don't know whether it would be the myrrh that was given to him as a baby foreshadows his death or this, this myrrh mm -hmm. applied here. Um, what do you call it? Recalls the uh, the the point of his birth, but there is a yeah. connection between the birth and the death of Jesus. Yeah. Also, um, just going on to verse forty one, which we already read, forty two, the last two verses mm -hmm. of this chapter about the place where he was crucified. Mm -hmm. There was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. This description of the, the garden tomb next to the place where he was crucified. Again, when I was in Israel mm -hmm. in two thousand fifteen, fifteen or 14, 2014, I believe. I went, you know, there is a certain spot where you can stand and see both the Golgotha, place of the skull where he was crucified, and an mm -hmm. empty tomb where to this day there is a garden and there is a deep cistern there uh, that used to hold water that could have easily helped in the watering of this garden. And, you know, they, they say there's no, it's not absolute proof that this was the empty tomb, but it fits the description. So I, I walked in there there. And um, guess what? I didn't see his body because he's risen. <laughs> yes, indeed. So indeed. I love, if you ever have the chance to go to Israel, I would highly recommend it. Put that on your bucket list. It yeah, brings oh, it's the, on my bucket list already. <laughs> it makes the Bible, uh, when you read it after that, it, it's like reading it in 3D. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I look forward to someday going there, God willing. I got to uh, baptize uh, some Bible college students in the Jordan River, and then I got to lead communion in the garden between Golgotha and the empty tomb. It was so special be able neat, to partake neat. of those ordinances there, those uh, sacraments there. Amen, amen. So, the final verse, so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And I would just mm. remind us of the gospel from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that's what we read just now, and, spoiler alert, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to mm. Cephas and then the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers, brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have mm. fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and last of all to Paul. So, my friends, that's the gospel. It's based, it's Amen. good news based on historical fact of who Jesus mm. is, about what he did, particularly in his sinless life as the Christ, in his vicarious death for our sins, substitutionary atonement that he made there. And the burial is an important part of that, and it's listed there mm. uh, because it certifies that he was dead. They didn't. They don't bury yes, yes. Uh, people in a coma. Well, sometimes that might happen, but mm. this guy was certifiably dead. Not only by the Roman executioners through with that spear in the side, blood and water coming out, proving that his heart was ruptured. You don't. You don't wake up from that. No, you don't. But also by those who buried him, and also being laid in a cold, damp uh, tomb. It's. It's not an incubator for bringing someone back to life. <laughs> No, it is not. So it took the power of God for Jesus to live the sinless life, 
die for your sins and mine, and be buried, and three days later, rise again. Just like Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So we'll study more about the resurrection next time. Yes, yes, we've gone through the the pain and the death, and uh, but we can't forget the hope. And there is great hope in knowing that Jesus Christ not only died, but rose. And uh, so we'll talk about that in our next show. And thank you again so much for joining us. Remember that you can find us on social media. If you just look up Dwell on Truth, um, you can find us on the web at oacnorcal.org. We have our contact information there if you want to reach out to us by, by phone or by email. And you can email us at oacnorcal at gmail.com. And we hope to hear from you. If there's any way we can encourage you or pray for you, um, please let us know. You can also find information on the website on oacnorcal.org on how to support us in taking the gospel to the streets and in providing more um, resources like this radio show and podcast. So God bless you. Have a wonderful week. And we hope you'll join us again next week as we talk about the resurrection. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to the Dwell on Truth show with Brenton Powers and Daniel Bodwin. And as we near the end of 2022, things are a little uncertain about how long we'll be able to broadcast on the radio. So go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. And that lets us know that there are people who want to continue to listen to us and will encourage us to keep making content for you. Currently, we have about 40 to 50 people that listen weekly. Some shows, when they're shared, can get up to 150, 200, 300 people. So if you would like to share some of your favorite episodes with your friends, please do so. And that's one way that you can freely support the work. If you've enjoyed this content and you would like more, please go to the Dwell on Truth podcast page, dwellontruth.org, or go to your own podcast player and search for Dwell on Truth. And if you would like to be a part of this ministry through your financial giving, you can go to oacnorcal.org slash give and sign up to give a year-end gift. Select the drop-down menu there at the giving link that you can find it. Once again, oacnorcal, that's O-A-C-N-O-R-C-A-L dot org slash give. There you'll find the three ways you can give, either to Daniel and Rebecca Bodwin or to Brenton and Lena Powers, or to the OAC NorCal General Fund. Or you can give to all three if you want to be super generous. And so we thank you very much for not only reaching out, praying for us, giving, whatever you do for the cause of the gospel, that's what we're all about here, is spreading the gospel. And please pray for our continued media ministry that I'm calling Dwell on Truth, and for our outreaches. We'd love to meet with you. We don't want to just preach at you. We want to talk with you. And if you'd like to set up a one-on-one appointment with me to hear about how the Lord's worked in our lives, and we'd love to know what he's doing in your life and see about potentially partnering together in the ministry, and there's a variety of ways that you can do that. So please reach out to me. My phone number is 831-594-2633. This is one of those rare times I'm giving out my phone number publicly. It is 831-594-2633. And if I don't answer, it's because I don't have your name in my contact list. And I do screen calls from people I don't know. So just go ahead and leave a message. Let me know that you're interested in connecting and your contact details. Once again, my phone number, this is Brenton Powers. My phone number is 831-594-2633. 831-594-2633. Give me a call and I look forward to connecting with you. But I really do want to connect with community. But for that, we need to share in something in common. Fellowship, koinonia is what the Bible word is. So if you'd like to be in a small group gathering, either here in Salinas, Monterey area, Santa Cruz area, or even up in the Bay Area or Sacramento, Chico, Yuba City area, 
I'm developing relationships and within those churches, small groups of people who are interested in joining us on the streets or for different events to reach out to the lost with the gospel. If that's something you believe in and want to be a part of, please do give me a call or text me at 831-594-2633. Okay, that's the last time I'm giving my phone number. Balls in your court. I hope that we can meet. Let's keep seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness to know God better, trusting that all things that we need to follow him will be added unto us. I'd love to share with you a handful of ways that you can do that. That's what we're here for. So thank you so much. May God bless you. God bless Open Air Campaigners. Work being done all around the world and across the U.S. and here in Northern California. My name is Brenton Powers. And I'm Dan Bodwin. So remember, dwell on truth.